When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 72nd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is follow the platinum rule to save face. I'm joined by Maya Hushan. She is the author of Saving Face, How to Preserve Dignity and Build Trust. The publisher is Barrett Kohler Publishers. Maya is the founder and president of Global Leadership Associates and the co-author of Global Leadership, The Next Generation. She's trained and coached leaders from Fortune 500 corporations to nonprofits around the world. Welcome to the show, Maya. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm always fascinated by things that involve foreign travel and and different cultures and how they connect and sometimes fail to connect as readily as they could. So this will be lots of fun. Let's start by having you give us a brief overview of the book. Sure. Um, So, you know, um, as executive coach and author, I have worked with leaders around the world for over 25 years. And I've learned intimately about their successes and challenges, you know, things like burned outs and turnover and conflicts in, in the workplace, etc. And the most consistent characteristic missing in nearly all of these interactions is how people deal with each other. And I have shared with them a concept that resonates with leaders at all levels and across cultures. It is so essential to their leadership but it's also counterintuitive sometimes. And it's the concept of faith. So faith is a universal concept beyond its origins of Asia. The concept of faith permeates 
all levels of social and business interactions. It speaks to the common human desire to be accepted and respected. So, you know, when you hear the term, it's not about the money. The real issue is often about face. Makes a lot of sense to me. You know, the executive who thinks they're just going to be spending their time with financials and the bottom line, that bottom line is going to be threatened if you don't have good relationships with others and you don't accord them the respect they're looking for. Let's make sure we understand what the term face means. So I, I want to kind of lay that foundation stone for this discussion, if you don't mind. Yes. So the definition of face is that face represents an individual's self-esteem, self-worth, identity, reputation, pride, and dignity. Okay, so that's that's a lot. That really <laughs> kind of speaks to how one views and perceives themselves and also how others perceive them. So, um, you know, face is our social currency in today's world. That means that the more face you have, the easier and faster you can get things done. So just imagine then that how we build a supply of face with somebody by continuously making deposits. You know, we build trust. We show gratitude and appreciation. We compliment people and recognize their contributions, both in public and private. Um, Or we empathize, you know, putting ourselves in their place to understand their challenges and situations. And we give people their voice equal time and weight. And so we do this continuously. And when we need to make a withdrawal, we're careful to not make somebody lose face. Now, for example, we give feedback in a way that save face and preserve dignity for the other person. And if we mistakenly cause them to lose face, the relationship can still be saved if there are enough deposits to cover the withdrawal. And so I like to call this the overdraft protection. (laughs) Sure. Makes sense to me. So I I have to ask you, and I'm certainly going on board with this because I'm a facial coder for one thing. So I've spent a lot of my career seeing what people show in their face. But I'm intrigued by a comment you make early in the book where you say this, you know, saving and building face is even more crucial in today's era of social media. Because I imagine for some listeners, they're going to say, wait a second, in the era of social media, it's faceless, it's virtual. Mm -hmm. So how is it that it's even more crucial today? I'm not doubting your words, but I think it it begs a a chance for you to explain the comment. Yes, yes. You know, um, social media really changed the way we um, interact with people, particularly with strangers. Right. And, you know, when we're on social media, it's so easy to offend or insult someone without the normal check and balance of having to actually confront them face to face with your slight. So um, as, and when we think about, you know, working with people virtually, and this is actually our new world now with with the pandemic that we have to deal with people, we have to work with teams and customers virtually. And sometimes that we use social media to reach out to people. And so it's so important for leaders and for anyone that wanted to build positive relationship to be mindful about how do we um, come across and uh, how do you build this authentic, lasting human relations and uh, and to so we can preserve dignity and build trust with people, even though we do not see each other face to face. 
So using your analogy of, of the bank and the investments, in an era of social media, is it possibly true that the the deposits are a bit smaller because we don't have that genuine in-person connection, which means that the the run on the bank, so to speak, the withdrawals if something inadvertently goes wrong uh, is yeah. even more precarious risk. Is that possibly yes, true? Absolutely. It's much harder to, when you are working virtually on social media to really build that deposit account, right? And so when you're running empty in your account, there's no overdraft protection because you don't have any foundation to start with. And so if you are um, uh, you know, not careful, not intentional or, or, or mindful about what you say or what you do um, virtually online, then it's very easy to um, offend people and you don't even know it. And so this is, that's why it is so important, I think, in this day and age for us to be more mindful and about how we communicate and how we show up both virtually and also in person. Yeah, no, I think it puts a lot more pressure. I mean, it's hard to build, you know, we often say trust is the emotion of business, but I think given how social media gets used to, to flame people, uh, it gets all the more precarious over time. We'll spend a lot of the interview, I think, on executives, but I have one question at least that kind of takes it down more into the ranks of workers because I was interested in this and you're an internationalist, so I wanted to get your perspective. You, you say at one point that knowledge workers tend to leave not so much due to money. It's really more about lack of recognition, lack of involvement, and, and maybe poor management. Do those three factors, the recognition, the involvement, the, the poor management, do they weigh differently in the West versus the East in terms of likelihood of these knowledge workers uh, leaving a company? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Dan. When we think about um, how knowledge workers value, right, and uh, research have shown that they really value, um, uh, you know, being being able to um, uh, to, uh, to work in um, autonomy so they can make their own decisions. And they also like to, to be recognized as somebody that's master in their craft. So um, the recognition piece is so important. And then finally is that they need to also feel like the purpose is part of their work. So if they, the work is meaningful to them. But all of, uh, behind all of this is that how their manager and also their, their peers and their direct reports um, uh, you know, treat each other, right? How do we interact with each other? And so let me give you a quick example here. Uh, I sure. Client, uh, her name is Linda, and not a real name, but um, uh, to protect confidentiality. So Linda works for a software company. It's a global company. So um, she has a uh, global virtual team uh, that she tend to use Slack. This is an online platform to, yep. uh, to communicate with people um, in a daily basis. So um, she really pride herself for being very efficient and uh, also very direct. Uh, and so she, when she used Slack to communicate, not only she used it to, um, to assign tasks, and uh, communicate, you know, getting getting uh, regular updates. But she also started using it to give feedback to her team. And so um, she would, um, you know, uh, put out information about, you know, negative feedback or positive feedback to her to her um, direct reports and her team members around the world. And over time, she started to notice that her her team performance started to. Um, decrease and also the interaction and also the engagement started to um, to to decrease and then so uh, she doesn't know exactly what's going on 
And so um, I started coaching her. The first thing is that we did 360, right, interview. And I talked to her team member to find out what's going on. Why are people not stop talking or stop really um, uh, providing their ideas and opinions? Then I find out that people were so humiliated when they were given feedback on, on Slack. And uh, here's the, 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 the negative part is that not only the person that was receiving feedback was embarrassed and humiliated, but also everybody else on the team saw that and feel bad for that person. But then also they made a mental note for themselves and say, well, you know what? I'm not going to speak up. I'm not going to make a, take a <laughs> yep. chance because I'm going to look stupid if my boss uh, put it out on, on Slack. Everybody can see it. So over time, they checked out, they detached. And this really affect the team. So this become a very critical sort of um, a lesson for Linda, right? So um, she started changing the way she communicate with her team ever since she got the feedback. So during coaching session, uh, a period that she continued to work on this to rebuild that trust. Um, it takes a while, but she was being consistent. And, and then also always think about how can I honor face meaning that recognize people's positive recognition online, but then also what can I do to make sure that I save face for people by taking those critical feedback offline. And after six months, this actually, she actually rebuilt the trust and it was able to save uh, some of the, uh, the, the team members that who were on the verge of leaving. Sure. Well, a couple of things strike me in listening to your your answer. One is that she didn't have a lot of deposits in the bank initially, that she didn't do that that same right. rapport building, so she faced a problem. Uh, the second one, yes, if you're humiliated, you know it, it's kind of I think your natural tendency to back off, and yet happiness as an emotion is about stepping forward and embracing and connecting with other people. So uh, I could see the crux of her problem. One aspect of your, of your answer I was intrigued by, if I could go back to it, you mentioned that everybody, and I think this is true, everyone doesn't like to be micromanaged. They like some autonomy. But so often when we think about the, the uh, you know, East Asia and so forth, we think more about the importance of, of peer pressure or the group and not stepping out of the group. Because sometimes in the West, we have this over-dependence on, you know, I'm the low ranger type. Um, so does that autonomy play similarly in the East versus the West or... Yeah, you know, just quite quite. How does it work out? Good, good question, Dan. So you know the cultural difference definitely is there, right? Um, you know the the typically that we see some of the the um Asian culture, um or Eastern Europe culture or Latin American culture that they tend to be more group oriented. So. Yep. You know, to be a sort of um, uh, individualistic behaviors are looked down upon. So, um, so that is definitely, I think, there's a cultural difference there. So, when leader, when leaders um, work with multicultural teams, that you wanted to keep that in mind when you um, communicate with the team members, and uh, you know, not everybody is willing to speak up, um, you know, and express their personal individual opinions. Um, but with that said, that I have noticed that since I work so much with global leaders and uh, that the younger generations actually have um, have been changing. So they're more outspoken and they're more adaptive to um, this global virtual work environment. So you started to see that there's a shift there. The younger generation are more willing to express their opinions and more willing to speak up. Um, but still, I think as leaders that we need to be aware of the cultural differences and don't assume that 
people don't say anything means that they agree. Right, so silence doesn't mean agreement. Yeah. <laughs> so no, no, definitely a, not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, that, that's interesting. I had not thought about the fact that even though there might be still, you know, regional differences, actually, age similarities might be pulling us together. As we indeed, you know, I mean, I have social media connections around the world, uh, so that is, you know, part of my day, and no matter where I happen to be. So let let's go to something I really wanted to go around the world a bit, if we could, because you've had that opportunity, that experience. Uh, you're from Taiwan yourself. Uh, you're here in the states, living in the San Diego area. So when I think about the face and I think about expressions and emotions, uh, there are you know certain core emotions: anger and fear and disgust, contempt, sadness, surprise, and happiness. I'm intrigued by what you see as the behavioral differences, the cultural signals, uh, wherever you want to take the question, but move it kind of around the world and make a series of comparisons as you would, because I think listeners might be fascinated by this. And so there's going to be quite a few of these, if you can bear with me. The first one I think I'd like to start with is actually Taiwan versus China. You know, looking at it from the, the subtle interactive style differences that you are so attuned to, what is the difference perhaps between Taiwan versus China? Mm, okay, so um, first of all, I think that people tend to assume that um, Taiwan and China are the same, right? Because we speak the same language and uh, um, have a similar cultural background. Um, and you know, uh, when but when you uh, when you start interacting with people in Taiwan and China, that uh, and and you would notice that they're actually in many ways are quite different. Um, and I think that the, the last thing we wanted to do is to generalize or to stereotype um, everybody Granted, in China. Yeah. Or, you know, or in China is a huge country. There's the 1.4 billion people there. <laughs> yes, right? yes. And so, you know, it's like we assume like oh, all Americans are the same. That's certainly nobody would agree to that. Right. So, yeah. No, there, there's a facile element to my question without, without doubt. But um, allowing for the fact that it's too generalized, I'm so curious to, as to what you might have noticed, at least at times. Yes. Yes. So um, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, the cultural differences that so you would, you, you know, I can say that Taiwan is um, very much still preserve some of the a um, lot of the Confucius beliefs. And uh, which is uh, more um, respect the hierarchy and also you know the virtue and uh, um, the uh, uh, you know the the respect for elders and those are all still very much alive and they preserve that um, you know for for the last hundred over hundred years and so um, so when you work with ta- people in Taiwan that you notice that there was a lot of uh, um, very, it's, tend, people tend to be very courteous, and they uh, um, they also tend to be very warm when it comes to helping each other out. Um, and uh, with China, that I think China is such a huge country. So, and also, you know, um, uh, because of the political situation um, that uh, you know, and the economic growth that uh, in the last um, decades, so uh, you know, multiple decades. So, China actually has grown to become. Um, a world, you know, a major superpower. And so the young people um, that I have worked with, they are um, in many ways uh, uh, very patriotic that I've noticed that they, uh, um, they also are um, uh, very tech savvy and, um, and also the whole generation of, 
of, of Chinese people in China that they because they have only had one child policy. So when the when they when it comes to um, working and uh, um, and uh, their their value system, they they tend to become more and more independent. Um, so you know there are. There are so many different ways I think we can slice this, but I, I mean, looking sure. <laughs> at some of the major cities in China, um, people are quite different than people in the rural area, second, third, fourth tier cities. So yeah, no, um, that's enough. not, yeah. So I think we wanted to not stereotype um, any, you know, Chinese are all like this or that, but they have some general tendencies. Okay. Well, let, let's maybe define the, the question a little bit more narrowly and I'll kind of go around maybe business practices and etiquette, but I'd like to stay with the country comparison if I could. Uh, the next one I'd go to is is China versus Japan. Oh, gosh. You know, those are, <laughs> you know, those questions are typical, difficult to answer. I have to tell you because, um, that, you know, um, I have to be careful not to, again, uh, stereotype those different countries, right? Yep. Fair, so, fair, fair so, enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, so, but there must be some some differences. I mean, I can tell you that you know when I'm doing my facial coding work, I find Japan much more difficult to pick up the expressions than China. Um, mm. To me, there, there's much more. I mean, you know, I, I remember once I was a student at Oxford, and there was a, a poetry festival, and someone made fun of the haiku form, you know, in a in a loving way, but said, you know, only problem with haiku form, just as you're about to say something, you run out of space. <laughs> and so right. th- there's a lot that's left unsaid. I, I in my time in China, I've been there twice. Um, certainly there in, in all conversations, wherever you are in the world, there are things that are said and things that are aren't said. And what's not said is often more interesting and more important. But I, I felt that the the Japanese were, if anything, even more circumspect uh, yeah. than the Chinese. Yes, yes. And, and I think that you're right. Um, one, that's, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed is that um, Japanese people are, are much more comfortable with silence than other countries, um, even compared to China. So they, okay. um, they, they're, uh, you know, they tend to listen a lot more and, uh, and then they, uh, um, they don't jump in and start expressing their ideas. They usually listen and uh, um, let you know, very respectfully. Um, and then when um, one interesting example is that it's a true story. A client have told me that it's an American company that they're, they're negotiating a very big contract with the Japanese firm. And this con- negotiation has been going on for month and month. Um, so finally that they agreed on almost everything except the pricing. So here is the final this uh, uh, negotiation, they actually met face to face, and then they came in in a conference room. And there's this long conference table. Half of the table, uh, you know, they were facing each other. So one side was all American uh, executives and representatives, and uh, the, the other side is all Japanese. So then they started talking, and um, you know, had some pleasant exchange, and then they started talking about the pricing. And then so the U.S. side, the American side, actually offered the pricing. And then the, Ameri- the the Japanese side, they just fell into silence. <laughs> okay. And then, um, but before they went into the meeting, the, the, the American team actually had a cultural coach. 
And the cultural coach actually told them about this, warned them about the silence. They say, if there is a silence at the meeting, don't jump in and start giving concessions, right? And just wait it out. So they did. They held their, they, they, they bite their tongue and they didn't, they didn't say anything. So they waited, waited, waited. And then guess how long they waited? They waited. 20 minutes. Oh, wow. I was going to say it seven, was... but 20. Wow. <laughs> 20 minutes is a long time, but they, yes, did. it is. they didn't say anything. And then finally at 20 minutes, the, the most senior executive from the Japanese firm stood up and, uh, uh, and then extend his hand to the American executive and then shake hands and say, you got a deal. after 20 minutes of silence wow that was a long time to wait but i think that so why do you think that is what 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 was the what's the reason they waited that long uh i don't know i guess if i was the japanese i'd wait and see if the americans got nervous and weren't used to the etiquette and would make concessions and i would gladly take them Mm -hmm. that's that's one reason exactly and then another um uh reason is that they are they wanted to see how serious this price is if the American um, really is, this is the bottom standing line. Behind, standing behind it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So how firm is that? And so so then um, after 20 minutes, they realized that this is the firm offer. Um, and then they, they decide to move forward. So I think the silence is something that I think we often are not aware of or, you know, it's hard to deal with in, in a different culture, right? Particularly Americans, we felt that we, we don't like dead air. So we like to say things. We like to fill in the dead air and then say something. And we end up actually, you know, give concessions and you know, offer things that we didn't really need to offer. So, um, so this is a technique, but it's also, I think, sometimes that um, it's a habit right? Sure. that for us to be more aware of when it comes to um, the silence. So there, okay. there are many examples like that. I think that when we work across cultures, um, and in the face, the, the saving face, honoring face, and and uh, um, and losing face are the key concepts um, in my book. That I think to to, uh, to give people a sense of how do you develop cultural EQ, right, and cultural yes. intelligence, so that you don't end up um, offend people. Or um, or say something that you didn't mean to say, um, and and you know, and then you have to pay a big price for it. Okay. In fact, that kind of leads into my next question. You have this methodology. Uh, it goes by the acronym of BUILD, which refers to benevolence, understanding, interacting, learning, and delivery. And I'm particularly interested because you you mentioned in the book, you know, that there's a kind of this cultural iceberg where a lot's below the surface of the water, and you have to kind of figure out the dimensions of that iceberg and what's going on. And I'm wondering, as you apply build and you're approaching, you know, two different cultures and interaction, I know you probably, the East-West divide is probably fairly common, but there's a lot of, you know, ambiguity or differences even there, whether you've got, you know, Canadian business people or American business people, whether it's Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, China, mainland, et cetera. How do you approach that iceberg? Is there something, you know, you mentioned build, I get that, but is there also something beyond that? Another way, which you kind of come in with a certain template but which you're trying to understand this cultural iceberg that you face case by case yes so you know cultural iceberg you know it's it's really something that we uh uh, uh we, we we ought to understand and, and it's not just a whole cultural like a national culture but we also should look at each individual like an iceberg 
And every company can have its own culture, most yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. So there's so many different layers, right? So there is a company cultural and there's regional cultural within the country and there's national culture, but then there's also within the company, there, there, are, there are team cultures or functional culture, right? So um, and individually that each person, if you look at it, this analogy that is an iceberg. So that means that we we should not judge the book by its cover, right? So um, by just looking at the person or or um, or um, have a very superficial understanding of who they are and their background doesn't you know it doesn't actually give you a whole lot of information. We should always treat each individual as unique. Right? And then take the time to understand their experiences and their perspectives. So in the book, I also talk about the triple A model, right? So how do you build this cultural agility and cultural intelligence is that you first just to be aware of your own bias and values and, uh, you know, and then the way that you look at things. So to have that first self-awareness. And the second A is acquire. So it is to acquire information about the other person or the other culture. Take the time to listen, ask questions, and then remain open and curious and know that where they're coming from. Why do they say this? Why do they do things that way? You know, um, so that's the second A. And then the third A is to adapt. So then once you know you have self-awareness and then you also acquire knowledge uh, about the other person, then it's time to start thinking about how can I close the gap? What behaviors that I need to adapt and change so then I can um, communicate and connect with the other person in a constructive and positive way. Um, so triple A, aware, adapt, uh, aware, acquire, and adapt. Okay. And let me, because you mentioned the individual level, and I want to go there with my, my last question, because you're also mentioning there's yet another way in which we have to look at the cultural iceberg, uh, which is a high-context-oriented person versus a low-context-oriented person. What do those terms mean in, in business practice? What's the implications or the, the, the watch-outs? This is definitely something that um, we don't think about all the time, right? And so low-context versus high-context means that um, in certain cultures that they tend to be a much more lower-context, meaning, uh, so, meaning that we, we tend to focus on the words that we use, um, the words that, that you know, we say or we write, and tend to be much more explicit and much more um, um, uh, um, uh, sort of concise in terms of the meaning. And then so that you say what you mean, you mean what you say. So that's more of a low context culture. And um, the, the high context cultural that when people communicate, interact with each other, the words that people are using to communicate is just a small part of it that what's even more important is the overall context, you know, the person, the roles of the other person, your relationship, the history between the two of you and the surroundings, who is around, who who is present and uh, what is at stake. So the body language, what is said, what is not said and what is their expressions. And what's behind some of the words? So sometimes read between the line or the silence can all be very significant. So high context cultural is that you actually step back and you need to be able to see everything. So there is a Japanese um, uh, line is that say one and hear 10. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so, and then the Chinese character of the word listen is the is is has three parts in this character. Is one ear, one heart, and ten eyes. That means that then that's listening. Is that you listen not just with your ears, but also with your heart and with ten eyes to really observe everything. So both saying can really imply both countries, China and Japan, are high context culture. Um, so don't just focus on the words people are saying, but really pay attention to um, what else is going on. Well, well maybe I, I'm Asian, actually. Um, maybe because I, I listen with my eyes an awful lot being a facial coder. But in my case, it's because my family moved to Italy when I was a six-year-old boy, and I did not know the language at first. So I had to yeah. read the culture without the words, and uh, it helped drive me in that direction. I want to thank you, Maya, so much for our time today. Uh, you've been my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This is episode number 72, Follow the Platinum Rule to Save Face. It reminds me, can you briefly describe what the Platinum Rule actually is? Yes. So the golden rule we all heard about, right, is treat others yep. as you would like to be treated. So the Platinum Rule actually is take it up to a notch. So a uh, Platinum Rule is treat others as they would like to be treated. But they would like to be treated. Fair enough. So to check out other episodes besides this one, you can go to my company's website, the three W's and sensorylogic.com, or you can go to the New Books Network and on its website, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you can see who else I've had as guests over the past year. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, uh, since you quote her at least twice in the book, Brene Brown, I found this quote that I thought was apropos to our discussion today. If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in the Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.